Hey everyone, and welcome back to the First Act Podcast. I'm your host, Harry G, and today's episode is for all of you who dream of working as a talent agent. This is part one of building success as a talent agent with Joe Atamian of Wasserman. Listen in as we break down Joe's unique path discovering and developing such incredible talent as Big Gigantic, The Lumineers, and much more. This is an episode you won't want to miss. And now, hosted by Harry G., This is your one-stop shop for hot talk straight from the top. Whether you're trying to build a job in pop, rock, or any other artsy schlock, here's your top dog with info that can't be bought, it's gotta be sought. So sit back, crack a six-pack, cause we're about to chit-chat and rip facts. It's the First Act Podcast. Hey everyone, we've got a very special guest today. We've got Joe, and Joe, am I saying your last name right? Is it uh, Atamian? Atamian, you got it. Third time's a charm. All right. Yeah, I'm going to have to fix that. <laughs> in the edit, in the editing, Atamian. Atamian. All right. Rhymes with Damien. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So that's a good way to remember it from at least for me. So Joe Atamian on the podcast today. Joe is a talent agent working over at Wasserman Agency. So, um, Joe, do you want to tell us a little bit about your role, who you work with now on your roster and um yeah, just kind of describe your role for everyone out there. Yeah, so uh, on the agency side, you know, we're we're pretty much tasked with finding and developing talent. You know, I work with everyone from Lumineers to Black Pumas, the Sturgill Simpson, uh, to Noah Khan. You know, Big Gigantic is and was the first act that I signed. So yeah, we're pretty much involved with all the touring deals, negotiations with promoters. We also, you know, dabble in the the private and corporate world. You know, branding. Um, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff as well. But for the most part, the uh, the day to day work for me is in touring and and working with touring acts. Right. So uh, in, from my understanding, a lot of talent agents, what they'll do is they primarily focus on touring. But like you said, they will dabble into other types of deals as well. Um, so like you said, like brand partnerships. So what are some examples of some, you know, very, I would say some unique deals that have come up um, on the brand partnership front that, you know, maybe hmm. wouldn't be applicable to all artists? <laughs> You know, it's, it's interesting. I have some very brand averse acts that I work with the, the, you know, larger three or four, uh, there hasn't been a whole lot. And that's not from lack of brands wanting to work with the acts. It's, you know, acts like the Lumineers and Sturgill, uh, in particular, they just, they're very uh, particular about having their, their brand be associated with with other brands that unless it's it's a complete match i haven't really been able to find a whole lot that moves the needle with them but a good i mean a good example of it and we didn't have a ton to do with this deal but a a good example of it is um west from lumineers and now i want to make sure that i'm right with the brand but rides uh triumph motorcycles so like they did a custom motorcycle for him. He did a bunch of, did a bunch of promo with them, like stuff like that, where it's, it's really trying to find the, the brand partnership that, that doesn't feel like a brand partnership. It's, you know, stuff authentic. That, yeah. That, that's authentic to the act. And 
is stuff that they like and and use in their day-to-day life either way. Yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense. You you, you were saying, though, um, you know, it, it, sometimes these deals don't often move the needle. So what do you mean when you say that when it comes to, like, brand partnerships and really like what what would um what would an act look for um i think it's it, it is just a lot of what they they associate with and use in their day-to-day lives at least for for the specific acts that are a little bit more picky when it comes to brand partnership stuff but you know like we've had like the the not this past luminaires album but but album three title three was was a pretty strongly influenced by their uh wes's family's involvement with addiction and alcoholism and it's like you know we have alcohol brands like reaching out to like sponsor the tour it's like well no that's <laughs> that's not gonna work right um so it's 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 really finding stuff that that they feel comfortable associating their name with and their brand with right all right well Let's shift gears just for a moment, because I know we just kind of jumped right into brand partnerships. And, <laughs> and it's not actually it doesn't sound like it's actually really so much of what you focus on on your day to day. Like you said, it's more around touring. So let's um, let's chat a little bit about touring um, since pandemic, I would say, you know, how has the landscape changed in your opinion or for some of your clients? And what is some of the promise that you see ahead? Yeah, I mean, since COVID, it really kind of feels like kind of like the, the story of America in general, to be honest. It's like the the biggest acts have gotten bigger. The the smaller acts are having trouble. The stuff in the middle is, I would say, leaning more towards having trouble than, than you know, seeing the success of people being bottled up for a couple of years. You know, this this fall in particular has been has been really tough at the club level in particular, just because there's so much there's so much traffic with other acts touring and everyone, you know, fans only have so many dollars to spend, uh, especially with everything that's going on. So, you know, somebody who might go to four or five shows a year might decide that they really want to go see Harry Styles and and that's going to be their concert for the year. So it's definitely felt like the no doubt superstar tours have done really well and it's kind of been to the detriment of the more developing acts i would say and then as far as promise going forward you know it's i don't i, I don't know if that it's it's kind of a double edged double edged sword in in that heading into next year like that you can't have it be as busy as it was this fall just like if there were that many out acts out touring this fall it's not going to be like that in Q1, Q2 next year. So hopefully that's a little bit better, a little bit better time. But yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's starting to naturally work itself out. Um, and another, you know, another thing is like the festival landscape, I think will be, will be pretty different going forward where, you know, a lot of these bigger festivals that aren't the established names like Coachella and Lollapalooza and ACL and things like that, but they're but are 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 playing at that same level capacity wise. I think you know we'll probably see some of those go away, and it feels like. And this was something that I, I think was kind of happening even before the pandemic that the super specific boutique 
10 to 15,000 cap festivals are, have, have started to really catch on and thrive. And that was something, you know, you, you look at festivals like high water in South Carolina and, and things like that, that have had really good success from year one, because they're super curated lineups. They know that they're not going to grow any bigger than 15,000 capacity. And, and that's how they, that's how they book their festival. So I think it's going to be a lot of change still on, on the horizon, but it feels like it's starting to level out a little bit. Okay. I mean, that's good. Like getting back to normalcy, which is really good. It's important. Um, do you think that artists are going to be driving new revenue streams, for instance, on tour to like maybe make up for some of the, some of the lost revenue, but at the same time, maybe just finding a new way to engage with their fans? It's tough to say. Um, I feel like a lot of acts didn't really enjoy doing the VIP stuff and they use COVID as kind of an excuse to get away from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're still kind of seeing it. It's like, oh, no, 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 no meet and greets on tour like COVID. You know, <laughs> we, we, we can't do this. And I think a lot of that will probably stay. And what I mean, you, this goes. Why do you I start to interrupt, but I'm just just to kind of kind of close out on that. But um, why do you think a lot of acts move away from VIP? Like, it, is it just because it's a little inauthentic, like meeting the fans? It's a lot of their work. It's a lot of time. Like, what is it about that? Do you think is off-putting for an artist? I, I don't I mean, I don't want to speak because I'm not an artist and I don't know what that's like. But I would have to think it's a little bit of that where it, in their mind, it probably feels a little bit inauthentic. But in the mind of the fan, I, I think that it's, you know, they meet somebody and it's the best, you know, three minutes of their life. Like there's something to be said for that. Mm-hmm. I think it's really, especially with anything that requires an extra lift for the band on tour, as far as like, I need to mentally, like, even if it's only a 20, 30 minute meet and greet, like mentally that has to be part of their day. Now. I think that it, it carries a lot more burden than you, you or I would expect having never done that before. It's funny that you say that, you know, I, I, I interviewed um, a merchandise manager recently on the podcast and she was telling me the same thing. She said, if you ever want to kind of introduce something new on a tour and you need to make sure that it's not going to be extra lift for the team, it has to be something that because things have been tried that sound promising and, you know, in theory, but then in practice, it's very hard because nobody wants to do more work than than their regular job. So adding all these extra things, even though it's it might enhance the fan experience, but from the team's experience, it just might there might not be enough bandwidth on the team. And it, yeah. might make, it, might, it might not make sense and, that to go through with it. And and there's still, I mean, I should say that that I don't think acts are getting away from VIP. I think they're just being smarter about how they do it. And and you know, like you said, not not adding more to the plate from the band perspective. Mm-hmm. Like a good example is the Lumineers tour. Like, you know, they they have a full VIP experience and it's it's really cool. Um, you know, it has like original lyric sheets from the first album and all this old stuff that they have in, in road cases to show it's a you know, private, private place for food and drink. It's just the band, you know, they, they don't have to, they don't have to deal with it. And I think you just need to price it appropriately. You know, like you're not going to be pricing it the same way as if you get to meet the band, you know? Yeah. I'm a, I'm a little bit curious to talk about web three, but I, I think we'll save that for a later part of the conversation. Cause that's more like future of the music business. Yeah. Um, but you know, 
I'm very curious to know how does somebody become a talent agent? So why don't we kind of like, we'll, we'll, we'll rope this back for a second. We're going to talk about, you know, kind of where you got started. So I know that you were mentioning to me previously that you've been part of multiple acquisitions to get to Wasserman at this point. Can we talk a little bit about, you know, where you're originally from? Like, are you from a music family? No. And, and I don't have the music gene either. <laughs> um, so it, it, the, uh, the, the lineage is strong, but no, I, I started off in high school. Um, where, uh, I grew up in the Chicago area. Okay. So suburbs of Chicago. And I, I just, I liked, you know, I liked going to shows and I, but I didn't really start going to shows until probably like my junior, senior year of high school. And I really just kind of liked being around it and the, the energy that came with it. And there was this guy that was in my, uh, my Spanish class in high school. And he, he was like, it was, we were complete opposites. Like I played sports growing up. Like I would play football and baseball. He was like the band dude who brought his guitar to class. And like in that five minutes between you know, when class was over and like the bell rung for everybody to get up, he would pull out his guitar and it was like a little like kumbaya session in class. Um, <laughs> and did you like that? Or you were like, oh, this guy? No, I, I did it. I, I I did like it. So like it was it was like the odd couple. Like I went up to him after class. He probably thought I was going to like shove him in a locker or something. And I was like, hey, like, do you want help booking your shows? And he's like, I don't play any shows. I was like, I'm like, all right, well, let's go figure it out. How, you were like 15 or something and you were just like yeah can i help you book your shows i was like seven yeah i was like probably 17 all right and it's actually yeah so i i helped him you know as much as i could and i called myself a manager i didn't i didn't even really know what an agent was at that point so hmm. you know I, I guess i was kind of acting more as a manager with him anyway but not, not looking back on it where is he now? He's still around. He's still around in the Chicago area. He really? was a yeah. He was a he was a professor. Did uh, music something or other at Columbia here in Chicago. So he like continued to do it. I haven't talked to him for a while. It'll probably be good to get back in touch with him. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a good excuse. You could send him the podcast episode. Yeah. Like, hey, you know, <laughs> you you got a little shout out in here. Yeah. No, he knows. I've done, I think I've mentioned it before. And the the funny thing was. So I really didn't know how to book shows or what to do. So I was just like, well, where will there be a lot of people? And I got, I, th I think like our basketball team was like in the state finals or something. And they had put all these flyers on this car for this new Chipotle that had opened. That was like right down the, like right, right down the street from our high school. So like I went in there and talked to the manager and like convinced them to let let them play like a show on free burrito night uh, for <laughs> for our high school. <laughs> so that was the first gig I booked was Chipotle on free burrito night. How many people do you think were rolling through that might have seen him perform? There was a lot. There was a. I mean, it was it was a good free burritos, man. To high school kids, like yeah, there was a lot of people that came through. And so, were you thinking at all about like retention? Or just just getting him seen? No, I wasn't that smart. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you were thinking outside the box. I think that's a really good idea to find like a restaurant that's doing a free food night near school, and then you have one of the students that's going to perform, right? Like, yeah, I think it's a really good way to showcase him, and and people, I guess, already knew kind of who he was in school, right? Because I'm sure he'd play in the halls and 
that's yeah yeah and it was and as far as like retention goes like i guess for the time we we did what everyone did it was like here's a thing for an email list to sign up like it was pretty pretty socials you know so right this is what when when was this like early 2000s i graduated high school in uh 2002 okay so yeah it was probably 2000 2001 what a time to be alive I know, right? <laughs> Go back. <laughs> yeah. All right. So cool. So okay. So you you managed him for how long? Was it just like your high school career? Did you manage him all throughout high school? Was it just like a short stint? We yeah, I started helping him. It was either junior or senior year. I can't really remember. And then I kind of helped him through through college, pretty much, just like getting gigs around around the city and around the suburbs. But yeah, it didn't didn't really go anywhere after that. What was the highest paying gig that you booked for him? Oof, I don't know. I think that violates my client fiduciary to be uh, <laughs> putting okay. that out into the world. Yeah, you don't have to share that. It was it wasn't a lot. That's fine. I it might have been it might have been free burritos. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, something's better than nothing, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I I honestly I don't remember. Yeah. Okay. So being the manager, did you get to like sit in on like recording sessions and stuff like that? Did you help him out with like going to the studio, finding out like pricing for all of that? Like what, like where did, like what did you see your role as? Did you see it as like, I have to be involved in everything or uh, like more like, like a manager or were you just like, yeah, I just want to get this guy seen. I'm going to book his gigs. It was, it was probably the latter because I didn't really know like everything else that went into it, being a manager. Like as far as like recording, yeah, like, like yeah, I was in the studio, but like he had friends who like were going to Columbia in Chicago and had free studio time. So I would just go in there and like I said, I don't play music, so I didn't have anything to add besides like thumbs up or a thumbs down from the <laughs> other side of the glass. Good, man. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it sounds funny. You know, it, it, I always like doing like having like hearing these stories because they're always so different. But there's like there's uh, common threads between all of us in the music space. Like like my very first client was a white rapper that I met at Jewish summer camp. And <laughs> and I mean, just I and I was in college and he gave me like an EP that he had. And there was um, a guest speaker I'm from Montreal, Quebec, where like Celine Dion is like our biggest export. Yeah. And that and like poutine. But <laughs> so Celine, so I, I managed to get Celine Dion's agent at the time. Maybe he still is. But um, I managed to get his ear and he like we set up some time to like speak and stuff. And like I knew that if I pushed a CD on him, he wouldn't take it. So I waited until the end of the meeting and I just left it on his desk. <laughs> for him to like see and then in, in, inside it, it had like a little note from me being like if you like it like send me a message you know never you ever heard it? never yeah. heard. never <laughs> heard from him but i mean you know you, you try things you try to think outside the box and get somebody he probably looked this it, it, on it it said a gift for you and that was the name of the album and i mean it it was okay yeah yeah but it, it's it's interesting because i was talking to somebody else about this recently like I can't think of another industry where there's like if you're getting in if you're getting into the industry on the business side, there's not another industry I can think of where there's so much potential financial upside 
but everyone gets into it, not think, thinking they're not going to make any money. You know, like if, if you go to school to become an investment banker, like, you know, you're going to make a shit ton of money when you go to school. But like anybody who starts in the music industry, like pretty much all starts at the same place where you're just like a hustler that doesn't have any idea what you're doing kind of thing. And it's it's weird thinking about some of like the managers and agents I've worked with over the years who like, I just try to picture them like working in any other profession. And it's like, just, <laughs> it's like the degenerates got the keys to the castle in this industry in a, in a lot of, in a lot of instances. <laughs> it's true. And, but, and like degenerate in the best way, you right. know, Be- because they're, they're scrappy. They think outside the box, they know how to hustle, but it's like, sometimes you just, in some conversations, you just roll your eyes. You're like, what? <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's like you never heard anybody like at least maybe you could tell me because you're doing a podcast. Like I can't think of anyone who started in the industry and it's like, I'm doing this for the money. I'm getting in, I'm getting into the music industry for the money. Like at least on the business side. Like I don't think so. Um, I've never I don't know if I've ever heard anybody say that. We've had people on the podcast who have made a lot of money in the music right. industry. But yeah. they um or or have made a lot for their clients and then buy, you know, buy product or by proxy, they ended up making doing doing really well and getting very lucky in some instances. But I don't think any of us really get into this space for the money. Right. Like everyone, everyone starts and like is half expecting to be living on their parents' couch in a year. I feel like at least that was how I was. <laughs> do you think the music industry like is still like that though? Like, do you think that we could still get like that high financial upside or are we living in more of a time where like, if you're going to be an agent or a manager, maybe try to do that on the side while you focus on something else that will give you like a stable income stream. I mean, it's there. The upside is there. I think the pool of people who are getting the upside are probably smaller than ever. And I, and I don't want to, you know, your question's interesting because my, my knee jerk reaction is that I feel like if you're doing two things and you're not all in, then you're not all in, you know, you're doing two things halfway. Mm. So, you know, I think it's at least worth a shot if you want to do it to go try and do it. And like, like I said, like when I, after college, when I moved to Monterey to start at Monterey Peninsula Artists, like I was fully expecting I was going to be back living in Chicago, uh, you know, within a year, like living at my parents' couch after I graduated college. So I, I don't think, you know, everyone's got to do what they got to do to make ends meet. But I think if, if you're, if you're lucky enough to be able to to do it full time and really go after it, you know, to, to, to give it a whirl. So I, I, I like your answer and, you know, you're talking about MPA and it sounds like you didn't actually believe that you were actually going to end up making a career out of this. You're like, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot, see what happens. And then if something happens, great. But for the most part, mom, dad, will see you in six months. Like, <laughs> Yeah. It's, I mean, there's, there's a promoter that I work with who, who calls out fairly regularly my imposter syndrome. Like I, I think it's going to all fall apart at any second. <laughs> yeah, like I was at, I was at Lumineers played Wrigley field last weekend and I'm the biggest Cubs fan in the world. And like the whole time, everyone's like, so you should be way more excited than this. Like, I guess I just kind of carry myself that way. It's, I don't know. It's just the way I am. But yes, I was, I was fully expecting to it not, not to work out. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So if you go in expecting the worst, then yeah. you can only be surprised. 
You'll never get disappointed. Well, that was that was that was the thing that I kept saying to myself when I decided to make that move was it's like I can always come back. Like my hometown's not going anywhere. You know, like what's the worst that can happen? I come back, I'm a little bit embarrassed and you know, go back to I mean, doing I mean, a regular job. It's not even it's not even embarrassment because I'm sure when you'd go home and visit, all your friends who were non-music were like, Oh my God, like you're working with all these bands. You must be having like you must be living the life, like you're partying every night. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that that is the uh that is a sentiment I get a lot from friends. Um if they if they saw how much of a desk jockey I am, they probably would think differently. <laughs> yeah, especially now with everything being remote, like you can just kind of live anywhere and just do everything from your phone or your computer, right? Yeah. Yeah. Often, like I find the the biggest managers will just be on their phone all the time. <laughs> that that's it. Like they don't even they barely use their laptop. Oh yeah, for sure. And it's I mean, it's tough because like there's a lot just a lot of travel especially for managers you know if you have if you have a few acts that are like really really going it's it's not just like covering shows it's like you know you need to be in new york for press and you know in the studio for recording and it's just it's a lot on the manager side i tell all the managers i work with that i could never be a manager there's no zero chance well it's it's like a glorified babysitter position but at the same time, like you, you have a lot of the upside because you have all the visibility. You have a yeah. lot of the power in terms of decision making. Um, and you're the one who actually helps make things happen. Yep. You organize the chaos. So we're talking about managers, but you're an agent. So let's let's pivot for a moment. Um, so you you were in school. Did you study also in Chicago or you moved out to California to, to Monterey? No, I was in I was in Illinois still. I went to Eastern Illinois. Okay. Uh, which is the, at the time, like it was the cheapest in-state school that I could go get a piece of paper from. Mm-hmm. Um, what'd you study? I, uh, <laughs> I, I studied marketing before social media. <laughs> okay. So very useful. <laughs> yeah. Very, very useful piece of paper I got. Oh my God. Even now, if you study marketing in a lot of marketing in, in like a lot of universities, they'll still teach you marketing before social media. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's, yeah, it's, but it, it, but it wasn't like the, the walk down memory lane. Like that's what I was really learning. They, they yeah. do it now is like, a, look how, look how stupid this used to be. <laughs> Depends on the teachers you get. Yeah. Um, okay. So, and, and were you involved in music at all? Like aside from managing, or, who was the artist that you were managing your friend? Uh, his name was Rob Nicholas. Rob Nicholas. Okay. So were you, were you managing, were you managing or booking or doing uh, anything for anyone else? I was, yeah, I was helping him. And then um, I got involved with the, uh, the student activities board at Eastern. So we were in charge of bringing all the entertainment to campus and, in my first or second year, we ended up like putting a bill forward that took five dollars a semester from every student and like put it into a college into a uh, uh, concert fund. Mm-hmm. So like we had you know roughly like a hundred thousand dollar budget a year to go get talent, which was substantial. You know, it's not like crazy, but we had some we had some good shows, some good timing. All right, okay. So were you handling the booking for it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was on the uh, so I was on the other side of like what I do now. So you know I was essentially a promoter for the college that I yeah, went to. Yeah, you you were on the buy side instead of the sell side. Correct. 
I like to describe it like that to people that aren't in the business because it makes a lot more sense in terms of a business. They're like, okay, an agent, okay, they're selling the act to right. a buyer who's a, a concert promoter. Right. Um, like you, I've worked on both sides as well. So I've, I've, I have a little bit of that visibility. Believe it or not, the podcast host has, has had a bit of a history. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah. So, um, Okay, cool. So, okay, so you got some experience. I'm, I'm, I'm like building your resume in my brain because I'm like, okay, it's always really hard to become a talent agent because it was actually my dream job to be a talent agent. Um, so this is like very exciting for me to hear from someone else. <laughs> it was like also like, yeah, like let me be an agent. Right. Okay. So you had MPA post grad. Was that like, did you intern anywhere during school or were you just, you know, you were working with your own bands, you were working um, with college, getting some experience, like. How did you land this job at MPA? Thanks for tuning in to part one. Stay tuned for part two. Remember, new episodes release every Thursday at 12 p.m. Pacific. See you there.